get out in front of it. If you got loans on your properties, communicate with your lenders early. I've done that now. And we're not having issues with any of our properties, but I still go to our lenders and, and say, hey, here's where we're at. Um, can we make some type of loan modification? Can we reduce our interest rate? Can we go interest only for a couple of months? Can we do anything that we can start piling up a little bit more cash in the bank? And most of them are very receptive to that because, you know, they, they don't want the property back. and we, We're not giving it back. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great, but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We are buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage, on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil, and you're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week has spent over a decade investing in real estate. He owns over 92,000 square feet of office space and 1,100 self-storage units throughout the state of Ohio. As the president and founder of Premier Self-Storage Partners, he specializes in the raising of debt and equity to acquire self-storage properties throughout the Midwest. Alan Fairs, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thanks. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, it's good to meet you. Um, so you have, you've been investing in real estate for over a decade now. Um, and you started, did you start investing before 2008? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and, uh, yeah. And what were you, you, so you're investing in residential at the time? Yeah. Uh, so talk to us about what, uh, what you were doing, how long you'd been doing it, uh, and, and sort of how 2008 affected you. Well, I, before real estate, I was in the car business. So I worked for uh, dealerships just as a service advisor. Um, and you, know, you can only do that for so many years or even just work for somebody else for so many years before you realize your income is going to be capped. So um, I wrestled with that for a few years, wasn't sure what to do and um, fell upon real estate. And um I mean, it was booming at the time, uh, pre-2008. So I jumped in and started just flipping houses on the side. You know, I was working 40 to 50 hours a week, sometimes more than 50 hours a week in the car business, plus flipping houses on the side. Um, in addition to that, we would you know, buy and hold um, a couple of houses here and there that, that I liked. So, you know, I'm, I was out in the parking lot on my lunch breaks, making phone calls <laughs> to contractors or tenants, screening tenants over the phone. Um, it was a lot of work uh, in the very beginning there. And 
Um, eventually, I bought a, enough of a small portfolio, about 15 units, a couple duplexes and single families. I just uh, quit uh, the car business, cashed in my 401k, and I was just ready for a change. And uh, I really loved the potential that real estate had and just what it can provide. So I just jumped in all in at that point. And that was pre-recession, uh, 2008 recession. <laughs> um so what time, what time frame uh, did you leave the car business? It was maybe 06-ish, 7-ish, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And not long after I left, um, obviously, the bottom fell out of the market. And um, you know, I was wholesaling, pro- wholesaling properties, negotiating short sales. Um, I was doing all that. A lot of guys were doing that. And um, you know, I had a about 15 units at the time doing everything by myself. And, you know, when the bottom fell out, people stopped paying rent and a lot of them could go buy a house uh, versus paying you rent in your apartment. So why would they pay you rent and then go buy a nice house at that time? They're lending to everybody who could, uh, you know, fog a mirror. So that hurt us small time landlords. So, um, uh, you know, we had a lot of vacancy. Um, it went through a very tough time, um, just as a lot of landlords did, just trying to make ends meet, you know, calling lenders, doing workouts with lenders at the time. I had to do some short sales on a few properties. Um, and, you know, several, you know, a couple, I was living with a buddy of mine um, and he, his house, his own house is about to go in foreclosure. And, we short sailed it and found a buyer and we're two weeks away from closing and I had nowhere to move. I was literally going to be living on my car within a few weeks. Um, Luckily a friend of mine put me up for a while, but um, so from there I, I I got my real estate license and just started selling real estate, just regular old residential real estate. At the same time, I sold a lot of investment property because a lot of my contacts were investors and I linked up with a couple investment groups that were buying large volumes of residential. So I did a lot of that. So, you know, hundreds of houses within a two or three year period of HUD homes, bank owned REOs, did a lot of that. Um, and got a, you know, I start, started dabbling in commercial real estate. Um, just education wise, reading books and just, I really, I wanted to get back into ownership in a, a big way. And I, I wanted to collapse time frame somehow. I didn't want to go through it and house hack. And if I need, if I want to get to a certain income, income goal, I need to own 50 or 75 houses or whatever that number is. It would just take years to get there. And I didn't want it to take years. Um, so I think I, I briefly understood the, the power of commercial real estate. Um, so I just started off getting educated, uh, reading books, um, podcasts, and um, I think I've listened to every real estate podcast out there for years, um, many books. Um, I was a real estate agent, so I did go and started taking education through the CCIM Institute, which is a certified commercial investment member. Um, it's a designation that a lot of commercial brokers get, uh, bankers, um, basically anybody in the commercial real estate industry is kind of seen as the standard um, from education standpoint. So that's a great organization um, to get started in. And eventually I started selling commercial real estate is really where it started. So selling commercial buildings, um, got into more investment, uh, commercial real estate, selling retail shopping centers, raw land, industrial buildings, um, industrial parks, um, all kinds of commercial real estate, got into ownership and some office buildings and, um, got completely away from residential. Um, it just, 
uh, love the commercial real estate business. And I was looking for an asset class that I thought would be very recession resistant after what I went through the last downturn and um, something that would be fun and something that I could automate where I wouldn't have to bring in a bunch of employees or a big management company. So that's what led me into self-storage. And we bought our first one in 2018. January of 18 is when we bought our first storage property. Wow, so you're so you're you're fairly new to it. Yeah, just a couple of years now. Gotcha. So I want to circle back a little bit and talk about um, your residential real estate experience because a lot of people, when they're first starting out, they have the same goal goal that probably you and I both did, which is you know, well, you know, I'm going to get up to. 50 units and uh you know the cash flow will, will let me you know retire and and sit back and and drink pina coladas on the right. beach and uh and and the reality is uh is usually different one that takes either enormous amount of capital uh a, a lot of time and a lot of systems to basically keep that up and running. And, um, I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with Kevin Bupp at all. Um, yep. Kevin's a, a, mobile home park investor. And I think he's also doing some parking lots now. And Kevin's story is, is, uh, you know, on the, on, even more extreme than yours. I think he was up at like 250 single family units in the state of Florida, uh, when the bottom fell out and he lost it all except for a multifamily unit. And that's the thing that people, need to consider is that it doesn't scale very well. Uh, it's a great place to start. And, you know, it's where I've gotten my start. Uh, it's where most of the successful investors that I know have gotten their start. Uh, did you lose all those units? Uh, I've sold them or short sale them. Yeah. So I, I don't have any of them now. Yeah. And then, uh, that obviously, you know, that probably, I, I had a short sale in the past as well. That impacts your ability to, to buy, you know, to get loans from banks on residential real estate. Uh, was that also part of the reason that you, you know, shifted into commercial? Yeah. And, you know, there was, um, you know, 2010, 11, I was, I was through all that, but it, there was a good four or five year law where you just lose, um, or at least I did just lost confidence in, you know, the market and just really was scared to an extent to get back in. Um, so I just spent time selling for many years. It did really well selling. I made good money, but again, that's a job is all it is when you're selling real estate for other people. Yeah. Um, buyers and sellers are the one making the money, not the broker in between. So, yeah. Gotcha. So your recovery, you recovered, you just went right into commercial real estate. Yeah, I, I was selling residential uh, for a brief period, a few years, and moved right into commercial real estate from there and kind of cut residential loose once I got my, under my feet um, for the commercial side of things. Gotcha. And you started off uh, in office office space? Yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to team up with a commercial broker um, who was willing to take me under his wing, and he owns a substantial amount of real estate here in Central Ohio. Um, so... Uh, they he owns and manages and raises money and kind of does everything I'm doing with self storage, but he does it on office and industrial um, level. So I learned a lot about office industrial properties, um, buying and selling, uh, helping clients do the same thing, uh, retail shopping centers. So it's just a lot of fun. And, and that's more along what I like to do. I'd rather do four or five transactions a year as a broker, at least at the time versus trying to sell 50 houses. Just, 
doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have, you know, you, you we're entering pretty uncertain, uncertain economic times at the moment. Uh, do you see any parallels between today and 2008 at all? Um, parallels. Yeah. I mean, everybody's scared and doesn't know what to do. You feel like you're in uncharted territory. Um, and uh, you know, I learned a lot from the last recession going through, we're on the brink of a recession right now. Um, and that's, I think that's helping us steer the ship of our investments right now. Just things that I've learned and, um, you know, not to be scared. <laughs> and luckily we're investing in an asset class that is very resilient. Um, it's not re recession resistant. I don't think, or yeah, I mean, people think it's bulletproof. It's not, nothing's bulletproof, but, um, it, it does very well if you have the right, um, location and economics going on with that particular property, um, stores us very well. Gotcha. So, uh, before we dig into self-storage, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you to put your crystal ball, your look into your crystal ball and tell me what you think is going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months when it comes to, um, let's focus on commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's a tough one. Um, and we weren't, we're not going to hold you to any of your predictions. Yeah. We're not going to come back and. <laughs> well, I think commercial real estate, uh, a lot of the pricing has been inflated for a few years. And I think this is going to be a correction and a rude awakening for a lot of landlords um, that didn't see it coming. Um, you know, there's a lot of landlords out there that bought commercial real estate that really, you know, they put the minimum 20% down and they wouldn't have much of a reserve account set up or didn't have a whole lot of liquidity. Those guys are going to be hurting and those properties are going to be hitting the market over the next few years. So I think it's going to be a lot of opportunity for people that want to invest in commercial real estate and get some good pricing over the next few years. Cause this, I have, I know people that own shopping centers where not one tenant is paying right now. And some of their tenants are, you know, names that you would all know their name and they're not paying rent. And, but, the bank still wants paid <laughs> and the property taxes still need paid. Um, so even it's going to take months, if not a year to get those properties stabilized, but there's still going to be such a wrath of turmoil that they can't overcome. They're going to have to sell it and they're not going to be able to refinance uh, more than likely. So they're going to be forced to sell. Um, so it's hard to say what's going to happen with the economy. Things are opening up right now where we're at, uh, at the time of the podcast, we're starting to open up slowly. Um, so hopefully things will get back to where they were at least close to where they were. That's probably an optimistic view. Yeah. We'll probably have another surge, uh, in the fall and they'll probably shut it all down again. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, it's, uh, we, you know, we're in Las Vegas. That's where we're based right now. And, uh, Nevada released their unemployment numbers about a week ago, and it's at 28.2% unemployment statewide, largest in the nation. Uh, wow. Second second only to uh, uh, the next closest is Hawaii at 22%. And, um, you know, and what I've said to people is, look, things are going to, you know, we're going to start opening up. We just have to, you know, uh, but the problem is that, uh, you know, the damage has already been done. Uh, both economically because there's people that are out of work and there's businesses that have failed and didn't have reserves and can't keep going. And there's also just the, even when things open up, you know, Vegas is going to open up and 
the casinos are not going to be at full capacity. They're going to be measuring people's temperatures when they walk in. They're going to require them to wear masks. They're going to, there's going to be no shows, no pool parties, no nightclubs. Uh, there's going to be table games, but I don't know how they're going to do it. Uh, you know, it's not going to be the funnest place to go for a while. And so I think it's going to, I mean, it's going to take a while for things to recover and it's not going to be just this, okay, everything's fine. You know, we're all back and happy go lucky and everything's good. So, yeah. uh, and I think that's, it's definitely going to be very localized. I mean, there's certainly, um, I think there's certainly parts of the country that are, they're not feeling this really at all. Uh, I've, I've talked to friends in North Carolina who are like, this is the nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. We got <laughs> you know, no problem at all. Um, but we have Vegas, who's, you know, very dependent on hospitality. And I was uh, talking to a banker friend of mine this morning and he's got clients with hotel loans and they're not paying. I mean, they're, they're getting hammered right now. Yeah. Um, it's a changing industry and they're not going to open back up and all of a sudden they're going to be full again. It's not going to happen. This is going to be a slow progressive process. And many of them guys are going to go bankrupt. Yeah. So you talked about some of the lessons that you learned from 2008. Um, and you said one was to not be scared. Were there any other lessons that you learned? Um, I would say get out in front of it. Um, you know, don't be scared or, or and just watch the news. Um, get out in front of it. If you got loans on your properties, communicate with your lenders early. I've done that now. And we're not having issues with any of our properties, but I still go to our lenders and, and, say, Hey, here's where we're at. Um, can we make some type of loan modification? Can we reduce our interest rate? Can we go interest only for a couple of months? Can we do anything that we can start piling up a little bit more cash in the bank? And most of them are very receptive to that because, you know, they, they don't want the property back and we, we're not giving it back, but we're just asking for a little assistance. So just getting out in front of it. Um, and it, also when you're buying real estate, especially commercial real estate, you, know, you got to have reserves. Um, you, especially guys that are out there raising money, um, you got to raise money for reserves also when you're going into any deal. That's just a better way of protecting investors' capital too. You don't have to do a capital call on a deal where you're, which is basically calling up all the investors saying, hey, I need more of your money because we're not hitting our projections. You, if you fund a good reserve account, you don't have to do that, but at least in Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, so reserves and just being um, conservative with projections. Yeah. You just don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. One of the best um, pieces of advice I've ever heard about um, the three immutable laws of real estate investing invest for cash flow, invest with long term, low leverage debt, and have sufficient cash reserves. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you do those three things, you'll survive most most markets, you know, uh, how much in the way of reserves are you typically setting aside? Um, we would used to go like maybe 10, 12 cents a foot or something like that. Now we're going 20, 30 cents a foot, um, just bumping things up. And I've talked to apartment guys that, you know, they would reserve $200 a door. Now they're doing three fifty to $400 a door in reserves. So I think, that's kind of the trend. Yeah. And it helps if you have any capital or big improvements you have to do for whatever reason. Um, you know, not just worrying about paying the bills, but you can also improve the property if you need to. Yeah. 
Um, are you, you know, lending also tightens up during these times? Because as you say, you know, you've got all these lenders who are being told by all these big players going, hey, we're not we're not going to pay our mortgage, in, you know, right now. And, and that makes lenders go, okay, well, we're not going to be lending any money anytime soon either. So are you seeing anything re- in regards to uh, lending standards tightening on commercial real estate? Um, I haven't tried to get a loan for a couple of months. Uh, we just closed a couple of deals a few months ago and um, we haven't, I haven't went to a bank uh, yet. That's what, who I was talking to this morning, actually, though. <laughs> Um, they're, they're hungry for deals is what they're telling me. Cause the, basically the spigot got turned off. No one, all the buyers got scared and stopped. They canceled contracts uh, on deals that were going to close and they're not looking at deals. So I think actually, I think right now is a good time to borrow money. I think you can get low interest rates and you can get lenders that are wanting to work with you. The past couple of weeks, they were busy, very busy processing all these PPP loans. And it was, it would take forever for them to process an actual refinance or a purchase. But now I think they're through most of that. And I think it's a good time to borrow if you can find a good deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's dig into self-storage a little bit. Um, tell us about the first self-storage you bought back in January of 2018. Uh, so this is a, a 28,000 square foot facility, um, 185 units and had a, a warehouse with it too. Um, it's a couple thousand feet. Um, and we bought that for 915,000. Um, it was owned by mom and pop, which is our business model. It's essentially a baby boomer, um, that owned a drywall business that was looking to sell the self storage business. And they still run their drywall business out of that property. They, I did a lease back with them on the, the warehouse. So they're still in there right now. Um, but when we bought it, they were managing the property. Their rent roll was on index cards. <laughs> they had no software, no website. Um, rents were low. It was just perfect. Um, it was an off market property. It was by, it was about to be listed by a, a broker that I know, a commercial broker. And I, I had talked with him in the past telling him I'm looking for storage and, he had been working on drumming up a few deals for me and he came to me with this before he listed it. So I was lucky enough to get the deal before they listed it. Gotcha. Um, so we closed on it and put, I think maybe we only put maybe $60,000 in it roughly. Um, just kind of cleaning up the property and most of the improvement of the value add was in operations, just raising rent, uh, putting a good revenue management system in place, um, good website, SEO, marketing, Google business page, um, all the stuff we like to do for self storage, you know, yeah. um, boosted. So we paid nine fifteen. put, we had what close to nine eighty in it all in, um, 18 months later, uh, so the middle of last year at appraised for about 1.8 million and we refinanced, got all of our money out plus a little extra for the investors. So the investors, um, they almost doubled their money within 18 months. And we almost doubled the value too. Yeah. And we still own it today. We got good long-term, a 10 year debt fixed rate financing in place. And now we're just sitting on it and it's um, well-oiled machine right now. Gotcha. Um, so when you purchased it, you, you brought in investors as uh, debt or equity and just purchased it for cash? 
we uh, just the equity piece. So I went and got a loan um, from a bank that I already had a loan with, with from my office building. Mm-hmm. So I had a pre-existing relationship with the bank. Um, so I got a loan from them and then the equity, which was I needed 250,000 roughly is what I raised um, from investors. And I was, I did not put any money in at all of my own, but at the time I was getting a brokerage fee of about 20,000 that I rolled into the deal uh, to reduce the equity amount. And your total raise was about $250,000. Yep. And that include the acquisition plus uh, reserves and uh, the $60,000 you used to kind of spruce the place up. The 60,000 we actually got from the bank. So they gave us, um, it wasn't a construction loan, but it was just some draw money that we could use to improve the property. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, What was the, um, what was the occupancy like on this place when you, when you bought it? It was um, mid seventies. And then they had, you know, quite a few delinquencies. I mean, nothing huge, definitely a lot more than what we like to see, but um, and you know, just people paying cash, um, yeah. owner was probably pocketing it half the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, so, but now, right now it's over 90%, um, the way it sits. That's great. Yeah. I, you know, I talk to owners all the time, you know, when you ask them what kind of money they're making and they go, well, you know, this is a cash business. Wink. <laughs> wink. Right. And I go, okay, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, we, uh, you know, we, we, we say we make a hundred thousand, but you know, we, we actually make more like 150 and I'm like, okay, well, congratulations. Uh, you know, the bank is not going to loan me money on the money that you, you, you say you, you make, they're going to want to see your IRS returns. Well, my IRS returns only show us making a hundred thousand, but we're making 150. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> you know, you, you, you were stepping over, stepping over dollars to pick up dimes, you know? So. Yeah. They want you to take their word for it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, sorry, no, that's not the way it works. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, usually they want you to make an offer without seeing any financials because they don't want to give them away, but it's like, well, I need the financials to make an offer. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's chicken or the egg type things. Yeah. It's interesting that they, you know, there's so many, uh, and it's one of the opportunities in the business as well is that there's a lot of very unsophisticated investors that got into this and they don't really, they, they know how the business works, but they don't really know how it's valued. Uh, and so it can be a real challenge sort of gently trying to educate someone, you know, look, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to steal this from you, but this is what a bank's going to expect from me in order to get financing. Um, and, and that's just the reality of, of where we are. So, yeah. Uh, how many acres was it? It's about two acres, I think. Yeah. So there wasn't any room to do an expansion. Um, there's a retention pond. Um, there's all concrete dry aisles right next to speedways and good location. Um, it's one of our better properties even today. So gotcha. the, the value add there was just an operations is, which is what we see with most of these mom and pop deals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we go out looking for I me. Mean, ideally we're looking for value add when it comes to being able to expand, you know, we can mm-hmm. add, add another building, but a lot of times, you know, sometimes just the operations is, is enough to really 
to really, really get a good return. You know, when people haven't raised rent, you know, like, hey, I'm 100% occupied. I've been 100% occupied for, for 10 years. And it's like, well, it probably means you're not charging enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they like to brag about that, but I wouldn't brag about that. Yeah. <laughs> you're leaving money on the table. Yeah, no, that's usually, you know, I, I think it's AJ, I heard AJ Osborne talk about, and he's like, when I hear somebody say that they've been 100% occupied for, for 10 years, I ask him, where do I sign? Like, right. where, do I, where do you take my money? So, yeah. um, so, um, so you're coming in there, you're, you're implementing, uh, you know, revenue management, which is probably, um, you're, you're adjusting pricing based on the number of units you have left. Is that correct? Yeah. Doing that dynamic pricing. Uh, we do that too. Um, but really just a software, um, that tracks all your customers. Um, and you know, like the, the big, uh, players in the industry, you know, site link, storage, easy storage solutions, um, just implementing a software like that. Most of these mom and pops do not have that. Um, they're using an old, you know, record keeping book or, or note cards or something, you know, so just by doing that, you can actually see the pulse of your business fairly easily. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's what, what we're doing there for that. And then we do adjust pricing based on occupancy down to the unit level. So, you know, if we're, you know, only 70% full on 10 by 10s, we'll drop the rents a little bit. And once we get up through certain thresholds, we'll raise rents as we go. That um, seems to be pretty successful in driving the revenue. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and how are you, is that a manned, uh, is there a manager on site or is that a unmanned facility? So we run all of our, we have seven locations and we run all of them unmanned. Uh, mm. I mean, there's, so there are boots on the ground weekly, um, but just for two hours or so at the most, and that's pretty much it. Um, so we run them all unmanned. Um, all the rentals are done through the call center um, website. And at three locations, we have kiosks. Um, the rest of them we don't. And our, our boots on the ground are just there to check the units, sweep them out, um, do lock inspections. Um, if we have an auction going on, they might have to, to meet somebody or, you know, if, or whatnot, overlock customers, things like that. Um, but, you know, 100, 150 unit facility, it doesn't take very long to do a lock inspection. Now you're done in 30, 45 minutes and you yeah. might have to a couple units out and you're out of there. It's only once a week. And some of them were, I think we're gonna go every two weeks. There just isn't enough activity gotcha. um, going on. And our bread and butter is a smaller 100, 150 unit facilities, um, not in the city, but on the outskirts of town, um, not too rural, but, you know, close enough to a major area. Um, those are where the, I find the opportunities are because the REITs aren't out there. The big players, like the big buyers, institutional guys, they don't want that stuff typically. Um, so I feel like we can find better deals out there and, you know, for smaller investors per se yeah um and dominate those small markets you can go in with a little bit of sophistication and dominate your five to seven mile radius no problem and is that kind of the the market area that you're looking at in those rural markets is a little bit larger five to seven mile market yeah i think you have to i mean in the city you can go three mile five mile max but then out out on the, on the outskirts you're going to need to go probably you know five to seven mile max 
Um, but we've gotcha. about seven miles sometimes, depending on where we're at. And then are you looking for any kind of any sort of uh, market demographics and, you know, population nearby that you're looking for minimum levels? Um, I mean, the more the population, the better, right? But um, a lot of it just comes down to the current supply of storage around there, too. Um, you know, when I look at the on an initial look, we use Radius, um, which is a software you can buy and it tracks all the storage facilities in the country. So we can plug in any address of maybe a facility we're buying and it'll, we can do, you know, three, five, seven, 10 mile radius and see how many facilities are in the area. And it'll give us a quick, you know, down and dirty, how many square feet per capita is in that market area. And so I look at that before I write offers or spend a bunch of time on due diligence or anything up front. Cause if they're, if it's oversupplied, it doesn't matter how good you are, it's yeah. not going to perform very well. So most of these rural markets are undersupplied a little bit from what I'm seeing. So. Mm. Now, typically, you know, the national average, you know, sort of the benchmark for a market supply is about 7.4 to 7.8, you know, is considered market equilibrium. If you've got less than that, it's undersupplied. If you've got more than that, it's, it's oversupplied. Are you seeing, is that a, a fair number in those rural markets or you, is, you think it's a little bit different? That's kind of the benchmark that I use is around eight square feet per person. I kind of use that as a, is how much higher is it than that or how much lower? Um, you know, if I see something with five, then I'm, then I know there's some demand there, but if it's creeping up close to 10 or 11, then, you know, we're going to, we might shy away from that deal. We're just going to dig a little deeper and see, are we missing something? Is um, something not calculating properly? Or do we have the right data? Um, yeah. So sometimes you have to go in manually and look at facilities um, and, and measure them. Because you can, using Google Maps, you can measure facilities. And the auditors are not always correct. Sometimes, I like radius, but sometimes it will miss facilities. Um, so if we really like a property, we'll go in and, and do a little more work. Uh, make sure we're, we're looking at the right data. Yeah. How are you, uh, how are you measuring the uh, market occupancy? Like how are you going through and sort of figuring out what, how, how full the competition is? So I have a virtual assistant and um, he will go through and call every facility. So we have a spreadsheet that we fill out and uh, he'll go through and call every facility and fill out, try to get the pricing on every unit type. Um, that we can and kind of feel out where their occupancy is, which you can tell just by asking, you know, what they have available, what their pricing is, and they'll practically tell you what their occupancy is and what they have available. Um, so we do that for every property. And we do that for every property we own um, every couple of months. We'll do rent competition surveys fairly often just so we can make sure we're you know, just we want to see where our competition is. We want to know them very well, their amenities um, and their pricing, how they're structured. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so you're, you, you bought that first facility in January of 2018, and you said you've now got seven total facilities? Yes. Wow. Yeah. How, how, did you, how have you found those facilities? Um, two ways, mostly. Um, but, you know, a couple of them we have bought on the market type deals listed with a broker. Usually, I've known the brokers because, you know, I want to get in storage, so I've built relationships with them. And I, I was a commercial broker also, so I just knew 
a lot of them in the industry um, here locally, and then off market. So my virtual assistant also does cold calls for us. So he'll just go through and call every facility. You know, we've called through every facility pretty much in the state of Ohio <laughs> more than once at this point. And we found deals that way. We bought several facilities that way. Mm, that's great. Uh, and are you calling just just calling the facility itself? Or are you trying to skip trace the owner and call the owner? Um, we haven't dug as deep as the skip tracing, and uh, you know, a lot of these properties they are easy or easy to find the owner. Um, usually, half the time the owner answers the phone. That's you know, it's their personal cell phone that the facility number goes to. Yeah. Um, even if it's a larger facility, you know, two, 300 units, it's still going to their cell phone at the time. Um, so Google, Google is our friend with this game, Google maps. Typically you can go over any area and just type in the word storage or self storage and it'll pull up all the ones that have an address and are registered with Google. Yeah. Um, so then just calling those numbers is what the VA does, but we'll also search, uh, for properties that don't have, that don't show up on Google, because that that's where you spend a little more time. That's where the gold is. Is properties that don't have a Google business page at all, or aren't even registered, they're not even showing up under a storage search, um, and they're still full half the time. So wow, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So when you decided to dig into storage, how did you how did you go about getting yourself educated? Um. Bought courses. I mean, I, I saw Scott Meyer 10 years ago at a RIA meeting, you know, and I was always intrigued by that. Um, when I bought the course back then, just didn't do anything with it, you know. Yeah. I always had like a, a rough uh, idea of the industry because of that course. And then revisited it a number of years ago and um, just refreshed my memory. And then I got, you know, bought some other courses and some books and um, some coaching, you know, when you can't just go at, at uh, a new venture alone and without a mentor. I mean, you got to have somebody there in your corner that really knows what they're doing. Um, so that, that was it there. Just books, mentors, coaching programs. I mean, you got to do what you got to do to get educated. So Yeah. Uh, were there, was there any particular book that uh, you thought was really helpful? Uh, not a lot, not a lot of books. What's that? Yeah, there's not much on self-storage uh, itself. But I'm just a big self-development, self-improvement guy. So books from that standpoint, self-storage specific. Uh, Mark Helm's got a great book. You might have heard of that. Uh, I think it's Creating Wealth Through Self-Storage. Um, that's self-storage specific. Um, yeah, but, you know, I was educated well enough for commercial real estate. I mean, I knew numbers. I knew how to value property, selling, selling commercial real estate for a number of years and already owning some office. So I understood that. It was really about getting educated on the storage business because that's what it, it's a business. It's not just a real estate play. A lot of people say, well, I'll buy storage and once we close, those things are cash cows. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not. And it's a business and you have people coming and going every day and you have to know how to manage that. <laughs> yeah. You have to put systems and processes in place to, to make sure everything runs smoothly, especially from a customer customer experience because it's a customer service business. So, yeah. um, you know, you can only get educated so much and you really just got to jump in and get your feet wet and start figuring it out. 
which I think that was one big mistake I made is I took too long to get in the storage business. I knew it's kind of what I wanted to do for many years, but I didn't. I just kept doing what I did every day, selling real estate until eventually I just, you know, you get fed up and you go ahead and you thought about long enough, you just take action. So, and what do you think it was that held you back the most? Um, I think part of it was the previous downturn I went through um, and not thinking, well, no bank's going to lend me money or no investor's going to want to invest with me. But that's untrue. <laughs> you know, people invest in you and your abilities, especially you know, if they know you, like you, and trust you, they're going to invest with you. Um, and just So, I mean, that's a fear that you have to overcome, I think. A lot of people that are new say the same thing. Well, I don't, I don't have a lot of experience. No bank's going to want to lend me money or no investors going to want to invest with me. So there's, there's ways to solve those problems. Um, you have to become resourceful and then solve those problems. If you, if you don't have a lot of liquidity, liquidity or money, then you maybe need to get a partner to help you sign on the debt on a deal and then raise the money. You could get in that deal still with no money out of your pocket. Yeah. Gotcha. There's different ways of structuring to, to compensate for your weaknesses. And that's kind of what I learned. Gotcha. You have to be resourceful. Would you say when it comes to self-storage, would you say the really key thing that you had to learn was just the operations side? Yeah, because we just didn't know what you don't know, right? You can only read and mentor so much. You just have to get out there and do it. And why would, would the way we were doing it, running unmanned was different than what my mentor or anybody else I knew did anyway. So we were doing it differently. Um, so to me, that first property was let's buy it. Let's see if we can do this unmanned with minimal um, employees, minimal involvement. And it really, is, to me, it was like proof of concept. Can we do this? And if we can do it, then let's roll it out and go all in. And yeah, we definitely did it. You know, we put you know the call center in place, the website. We did put a kiosk there. Um, and the thing just took off. And so gotcha. once that, once I saw that within six months, you know, owning that property, we went full in and trying to buy more. <laughs> gotcha. And what's your smallest facility that you've purchased? Um, probably about 12,000 feet. So it's less than a hundred units. Yeah. Um, the only reason I did it is because it's here in Columbus where I'm at. <laughs> it's close. Um, if that was far away, I wouldn't have done that more than likely. Um, sweet spot, I think, is 100, 100 units or more. 100 units is a, a good minimum for these smaller markets because any smaller, um, the, fit, the expenses are typically fixed. Yeah. And you can only go so small to where it's not going to make any money. So uh, Unless you're going to go run it yourself. And so uh, we try to stay 100 units or more. Sweet spot is probably 150 to 200 units. Yeah. Um, those are those are great facilities. And the big ones that are three, 400 units, you start having bigger players look at those. And then the, you're going to pay more. Cap rates are going to be lower, which means you're paying a higher price for them. So I think that sweet spot is around 100 to 200 unit range is where you can find some deals. Gotcha. Uh, sort of like, you know, we've talked to uh, some multifamily people recently and the, the sort of sweet spot some of them are looking for is that kind of mid-sized 40 to 80 units, you know, because a lot of the, the big players aren't, it's too small for the big players and it's too big for the, you know, the people who've got no experience. And so it sort of sounds like that's kind of the same pool that you're playing in. 
Yeah. Yeah. That would match up with that. Yeah, that's for sure. Gotcha. So, um, you know, you've got most of these facilities are all unmanned. How, how much time would you say the self storage side of the business has taken you, uh, each week? Well, for me, I, I mean, I work a full week. Um, I'm a 5am guy. I'm up at five. I work out, um, do my thing and then I'm at work, you know, by seven and home by four, four thirty to eat dinner and be with the kids. That's Monday through Friday. But I'm also in a, a building acquisition phase of my business. So you know, I'm going to have a lot more time involved. I could stop acquiring right now and probably just have, you know, half a day's worth of work a week of that based on what we have. If I wasn't buying or selling anything. Yeah. Or developing anything. You know, you're always we're building a building on one, we're building a building on two properties and on a new entryway on another one. So <laughs> there's always something going on that takes up time. But once that stuff's done, there's really not a whole lot of involvement on my part. The only reason I'm so busy is because we're acquiring and expanding facilities. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um when you, uh, you know, you're, you're raising capital for most of these deals, how are you structuring um, that capital? Are they, are they, when you, when you pay them out, are they totally out of the deal or are they, do they stay in the deal and they continue to receive cash flow? So my, the way I structure mine is that we, we give our investors a, a preferred return, which is essentially a, a guaranteed not guaranteed, but basically they get paid first before I get anything. That's what the preferred means. Um, so after that's paid, we split everything 50-50. Now, plus I'm getting a management fee to manage the property. Now, once we sell a or on a refinance, um, the goal is to get all their capital back to them, their initial investment. And if we have anything additional, that's great. But once they have all their capital back, they are still in the deal. So the 8% preferred will go away. And now it's just a straight split of cash flow. Gotcha. So on my deals, typically I have no money in it. <clears throat> but I'm, but I'm saying I'm signing on the debt typically too in handling operations. Gotcha. So investors and the bank put up the money and I put up the expertise and the operations. Gotcha. Um, so once you're out of acquisition mode, do you think this is the kind of thing that you could do from remotely from anywhere in the world? If you was like, you know what, uh, I'm tired of the winters in Ohio. I'm going to go live in, in Florida for this, for the winter. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we've talked about that already, but I mean, there are properties that I haven't been to in several months just cause I don't need to go there all the time to look at it. There's nothing to do. Um, <laughs> and I have boots on the ground there. That that's there every week. Um, so something out of the ordinary needs done. I can always dispatch another vendor to, to fix something, to take care of something. Um, so I, I could be anywhere and run these seven properties right now. That's and that's what I love about the business. We can move if we want. We are in Ohio. Maybe we want to move to Carolinas or Texas. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't mean I have to sell my properties. We would yeah. keep them all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Alan, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our listeners want to learn more about you and uh, what would be the best way for them to connect with you? Um, then go to our website, premierstoragepartners.com. 
you know, all our contact information down there. Okay. Well, Alan, it was great talking to you. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. Have fun. a good one. Bye. Okay, that was Alan Fairs from PremierStoragePartners.com. Uh, we certainly in, enjoyed talking to him. If you want to check him out, uh, go to their website. Um, so for me, the key lesson learned here was to get out in front of problems and crises. Um, you know, he he said when all this started with COVID, um, you know, he reached out to his his lenders and said, all right, you know, how can we restructure our debt? Um, you know, lower the payments, interest only, you know, whatever. I, I had the same experience. Uh, we were right in the middle of a uh, of a rehab on a Burr property. And I, I had heard that cash out refis were going to be going away soon. So I picked up the phone and I called my lender and, and found out, you know, what are my, what are my, what are my options? Um, don't just sit back and, and be surprised, uh, when, when things change. Um, also, um, you know, I, I love what he said about, um, and we, we harp on this a lot is that, have reserves. I mean, real estate is not a, a particularly hard business to survive when things go bad. If you've got reserves um, and cash flow, you know, uh, because when that cash flow stops, you've got the reserves that give you some time to adjust and and um, and get things back up and running. So a property's cash flowing again. So. Um, how did he acquire, what, what knowledge did he need to acquire and how did he acquire it? Um, he had to learn uh, the operations side of self-storage because it it's a business. Um, and especially uh, learning how to operate a, an unmanned facility like he did, you know, figuring out the processes and systems and softwares that you have to deploy and websites and things like that. Uh, and he mostly got that from courses, some, a little bit of paid mentorship and, uh, and some books. How much money uh, did it take him to get started in his niche in self-storage? It really, um, not a lot of his own money because he, he went out and he raised the capital to buy that first facility. They raised about $250,000. Um, and I think he may have had to probably put some money into the deal, but not a lot. Um, and, uh, that's one of the beauties of, uh, of commercial real estate and, and using other people's money, um, is that you can go out and if they know, like, and trust you, then, you can use you, you can leverage your expertise in the asset class to raise money. So, um, how much time does he spend on his real, his self storage endeavors right now? He's, it's a full-time job for him right now, but they're in acquisition mode. He's out there, uh, managing, uh, expansions, um, you know, going out there and, and raising investor capital, uh, looking for deals and things like that. Um, but he said, once he's out of acquisition mode, it really doesn't require any of his time. He, it's a very, it's a very passive business. Could he do this strategy from anywhere in the world? Yes. Once he's out of acquisition mode. Uh, I mean, these facilities are mostly unmanned and he's got the systems and processes in place to, uh, for them to run themselves. So, all right. Once again, that was Alan Fairs from PremierStoragePartners.com. Go and check them out. Um, we're doing this all again next week. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. 
and let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.